Hear the word of God from John chapter 11. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. John 11, verses 1 through 44. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of, man, so the, so the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now we'll go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. 
a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So family, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And I hope you found it to be rich, so rich and full of deep theology that you can swim in its depth. Also so shallow that you can comfortably drink from it. Now the purpose of John is that you can hear about the life of Jesus and believe. Believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe that he is the Messiah come to rescue. Last week, Pastor Eric taught us, I'm just going to say that again. Last week, Pastor Eric, where's, where's Pastor Eric at? I'm going to say that again. I like saying Pastor Eric there. What if Eric, he's over there. Oh, there he is. All right, Pastor Eric. He talks about Jesus as the good shepherd. Today, I want us to look at the seventh sign that John gives us pointing toward the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is life. In preparing for the today's sermon, I looked at Matthew Henry's commentary really quickly on this passage. And I love that according to Matthew Henry, Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he just said, come forth, all the dead would have come forth. That's how powerful Jesus is. I love that. Lazarus, come forth. Oh, I'm not, what if I said all? And I just love the fact that Matthew Henry's point is he had to say Lazarus. Because Jesus is so powerful, he could raise everyone. In this scene we're talking about here, chapter 11 and 10, or end of 10, Jesus had gone east of the Jordan River. He's left Jerusalem and has gone to a place that John had already kind of described for us in chapter 1 and verse 28, where John the Baptist did his preaching and baptizing in the River Jordan. When he gets there, the people there kind of have memories of John the Baptist, and they saw so many people come and respond to Jesus' teaching. It's perhaps the most fruitful episodes that the disciples have witnessed thus far. So at the end of chapter 10, this incredible fruitfulness you see with Jesus and his disciples. Chapter 11. There's a kind of like a good amount of debate on exactly where Jesus is at the start of this chapter. Most commonly believe that he was about 50 kilometers east of Jerusalem, just across the River Jordan, about a day's journey from Bethany. But there are others who believe that Jesus was much further north, about a four-day journey from there. Now, this breakdown that I'm about to give you for this sermon today, this message today, is actually something that I heard a classmate of mine in seminary actually preached this exact outline. And I don't remember at all what he said in the sermon, I just remember his outline. So I was like, I'm going to use that, because I thought that was so good. <laughs> and it said this, I love this. He showed us three key points that he wanted us to see in this passage. Is one, an unusual love. Two, an unusual joy, and three, an unusual sympathy. So I'll say that again. An unusual love, an unusual joy, an unusual sympathy. First of all, let's look at this unusual love. The chapter opens up with an announcement that Lazarus is sick. 
Their home is in Bethany, near Jerusalem, within walking distance, maybe a couple of miles from Jerusalem. And you remember, that actually mentions in this story that in Luke chapter 10, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to this Bible study that Jesus is giving. And Martha, the one you know, everybody kind of makes fun of, calls her the managerial one, the managerial Martha, is in the kitchen. Her hair is a mess. There's flour everywhere. She's cooking and cleaning, doing all sorts of good work. She gets up and is like, Mary, come help me out. Jesus, tell Mary to help me out. That's the story. Remember, that's the same Mary and Martha, in case you were wondering. Because there's probably a lot of Marys. You're like, there's a million Marys out there. Who knows who they are? Same Mary and Martha. Jesus has a friendship with his family, with his home. This could be where he stayed when he came down for feast days in Jerusalem. They were close friends. Look at the language. It says in verse 3, whom you love, when he talked about Lazarus. Verse 5, Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Let me pause right here real quick. He says, the whom you love is sick. The one you love is sick. Some of you might have heard those, those words this, this past year, this past month, this past week. Maybe you heard those words, someone you love, the one you love, your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your child is sick. Let me pause right there and make this point. Jesus knows that heart-wrenching feeling that you get when you hear those words. Jesus knows that gut-turning feeling, You're like, who? What? No. Not that person. Not right now. He knows that the questions that fly around your head when moments like this, there's nothing that has happened that, you're, that Jesus doesn't relate to, that he doesn't know when he came, and that's why he came in his human self. And Jesus says something in verse 4 that I think the disciples heard as good news. They probably also knew and loved Lazarus as well. And Jesus says, the sickness is not unto death. The disciples, I'm sure, took that to mean that the illness isn't that bad. Oh, okay, cool. Lazarus is sick, but he's not going to die. Whew, okay. But that's not what Jesus said. That's what they heard him saying. Now, I love the fact that the sickness is not that Jesus meant by that something different. Even though he was going to die, he was going to live again. The disciples heard him say the sickness is not to death. What he meant was that Lazarus' death would not be the ultimate result of his sickness. Can I tell this to you really quickly? It's just a quick aside. There are some of you guys who are here today and you've heard those words recently. The one you love is sick. Can I tell you that there is hope in that? That Jesus says the words that this will not lead on to death. Now it could be a death. It could lead to a death that is in this world, a temporary death. That's what ultimately happens to Lazarus anyway. Even though he was resurrected, he still ends up dying. But what Jesus is referring to is in the end, Lazarus will live forever. Can I tell you people, may this be of comfort to you. When the one whom you love may be dying, can I tell you that there, for that person there's a chance to know life eternal. And may that be of a comfort. That doesn't need to lead to death. In verses 5 and 6, something really unusual happens. When he hears that Lazarus is sick and how he hears, we don't know exactly how he hears that. Might have, somebody else might have come where Jesus just could be like, oh, Lazarus is sick. I just found out about it somehow supernaturally again. He stays an extra two days. In the Greek, there is actually a therefore. Here he's that Lazarus is sick and therefore he stays an extra two days. That's a weird thing, isn't it? That doesn't make any sense. He says, hey, Lazarus is sick. And then he's like, okay, people, don't worry about it. Lazarus is going to be fine. Then he comes back. Somebody says, hey, Lazarus is sick again. He's like, oh, let's wait another two days. That's weird. 
Well, the one you're, if you hear that, you're, oh, my husband is sick, my wife is sick, my child is sick, what's the first thing you do? I'm like, I'm gonna call him, I'm gonna hop in my car, I'm gonna take a plane, I'm gonna go be with that person. You call, write a note, you shoot an email, shoot a text message, you drop everything, you go. But, but he stays an extra two days when he hears that Lazarus is sick. Now, there's a traditional interpretation of that. Some commentators have said this in the past. Some pastors, maybe you've even heard this, that Jesus' delay for two days was an act of love because it glorified Jesus in a greater way. If he waited two days, because Lazarus would then have been dead for four days by the time he got there. There was a superstition amongst the Jews at that time that a soul or spirit kind of hung around for about three days, hung around the body. So that, as, as honestly, I heard that as a little boy, that message as a kid, and I, I got scared to death. Like, oh, man, there's spirits all around, there's ghosts. What are you talking about? I don't like this at all. And so, that's not in the Bible, by the way. That was just a superstition that people, that's actually a common, one person's interpretation of what could have been in this situation. So don't, go, don't get scared right away. But there is this idea that, oh, that's why, that, that Jesus wanted to confirm that Lazarus was really, really dead. That it was, a day's, it was a day's journey from Bethany to Jesus by messengers to tell him that he was sick. Actually, two days that he waited, and then another day when Jesus would have come back. In other words, he would have been really dead if this was the case. But why wait two days if that's not the case? This is what it says. It says that the love of Jesus, and hear this very well, the love of Jesus will always be for the glory of God. It's not a difficult thing to say intellectually, but it's a difficult thing to understand and keep before us. Look at verse four. This sickness is not to death, he says initially, but for the glory of God. And the love of Jesus has this paramount and supreme goal as the glory of God. It's the most ultimate thing in the universe. That's the most important thing. It wasn't even the comfort of this family that Jesus loved. That wasn't the most important thing, the most paramount thing. Now listen, it'd be easy to come in here and interpret what Jesus does as being unsympathetic or uncaring and say, oh, Jesus doesn't care. He's not sympathetic. He doesn't care. He cares only for the glory of God. And let me tell you something, guys. And this is why I want you to understand that the most loving thing that you can do and the most loving thing that Jesus could do here was seek the glory of God. You see, it's an unusual love. Love, as we would often define it, would mean that Jesus would drop everything and rush to Lazarus. Love, as we understand it, means if you really loved Lazarus, if you really loved this family, you would do everything, you'd be sympathetic to their hurt, you would end their pain, and you'd quickly rush to their side and fix everything and make it all better. That's how we understand and define love, isn't it? But love, as Jesus defines it, says what is produced for the glory of God is better than anything else. And that should be our comfort. You see, I want you to hear this. Though Lazarus was raised from the dead, he still died. It's a temporary death, stay of death order. He still ends up dying. What lasts, what is more important is the glory of God and what it produces in us. That gives meaning to our suffering. It gives meaning in light of death and illness. Do you see the difference that would make in our, in our lives if we understood that? If we saw that love wasn't just fixing everything and making it all better, if love wasn't just getting rid of all the troubles, guys, can I tell you, as a husband, that's one of the hardest things in my life right now. As a husband, I think love means for my wife, every time she complains or anything goes wrong, I want to make it all better. I want to fix everything. I want to be the hero because I want her to be like my hero. And I'd be like, yes. But that's not what's best for her. Then I become a crutch for her. Then I become her savior, and it doesn't point her to Jesus. It doesn't make her more like Jesus. It doesn't shape her character. It doesn't build perseverance and long suffering. Do you see the difference there? 
What my wife needs is not me to be her savior. My wife needs me to say, care more about the glory of God because in that, there's an answer for suffering in this world and meaning in her life. Does that make sense? Do you guys see that at all? If we believe that, we would be saying the glory of God must be bound up in this. Whatever is happening, whatever circumstances, the glory of God is bound up in this. This cancer, this hurt, this pain, that issue, that stress on your mind, the glory of God is bound up in it. And maybe that's where you are tonight or today. There is someone in your family, they're sick. There's something going on in your heart and it's tough and they're suffering and you just think, God, why don't you just do that? And he can, and sometimes he does. But other times he doesn't because there's something bigger at stake, something more, it's glory because any easing of our pain and easing of our suffering now, easing, even stay of death now is just temporary. But what it produces is eternal consequence. That's why it's an unusual love. It doesn't look the same as the way we understand love to look. It looks bigger, deeper, more eternally. Number two, it's an unusual joy. Verse 15, after he said in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, he says to the disciples, I was glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. That's strange. From one level, we can understand that, yeah, you know, um, it doesn't make any sense at all because typically like, if somebody's dying, like, that's the one thing, like, I wish I was there, right? Like you, you miss the passing of your father or your mother. That's the thing that you regret the most. I, I just wish I was there when they left. But here's Jesus saying, I, I was glad I wasn't there for your sake. You would expect you to say something along the lines, how I wish I could have been there to, to hold his hands, last his hand as he passed away, to comfort his sisters. That's what the, the usual love and joy would be. But he says, I was glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Let's go back a little bit. Jesus says in verse seven, let's go to Judea again. Now this is after two days he waited. The disciples are horrified because they were trying to kill him back in, the people were trying to kill him back in Judea and Jerusalem. And Bethany's only two miles away from Jerusalem. And he says this weird passage, are there not 12 hours in daylight? Everybody, does anybody else, what was that? Did anybody else think that question? Be honest. You guys all understood it? Man, you guys are good. I was like, I was like what does that mean? In other words, he's saying that there's no need for Jesus to skulk like a common criminal. He's going to go do the work in the daylight no matter what. So his own death was in the hands of God, in the providence of God, and he's going to do something in Bethany, and his disciples hadn't even begun what it was. And that's why he says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. And I love Thomas. Here comes Thomas, right? And by the way, when I was working on this sermon, when I said, here comes Thomas, in my mind, I was singing that song from Hamilton, you know, here comes Thomas. Thomas Jefferson's coming home. Not the point at all, but I just, I don't know why that was in my head. You know, because like, here comes Thomas. Thomas. Okay. Thomas gets bad press in the Bible, uh, in culture. He's called Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, people make fun of him. They're like, oh, he's a guy that said, you know, after the resurrection, I won't believe until I actually touch the holes, you know, where in Jesus' hands and his side. And this is what he says in verse 16. Let's go that we may die with him. Now, um, Thomas could be, maybe meant, let's go that we may die with Lazarus because of the persecution from Jerusalem. But more than likely, because the disciples were still confused as to whether Lazarus was dead or asleep, he's literally meaning, let's go that we may die with Jesus. Now, it's easy to see why he'd believe this way. Jerusalem was a, like, 
crazy right now. John the Baptist was just killed. Um, people were raped. They want the death of Jesus just as much as John the Baptist. And here's Thomas saying, okay, guys, look at his brothers. Let's go. It's time. If he says it's time, he's going. Let's go with him. Let's, let's go out and blaze of glory. If he's going to die, I'll die too. I love that, man. He gets a bad, Thomas gets a bad rap. He's, he's not down on Thomas. He's like the guy willing to die with this guy. Actually, tradition has it that Thomas went all the way to India. Um, and there is a little hill just outside the airport um, to this day that you can go where it said that the grave of Thomas can be found. He was supposedly martyred for the faith, um, killed with a spear, actually, for the cause of the gospel. So I love doubting Thomas, man. Forget that. Call him the twin. No, <laughs> when Jesus gets to Bethany, he finds a scene of great sadness. Lazarus has been dead for four days. People have come from Jerusalem. Um, Martha, the, the manager, always wanting control, comes out to meet Jesus and says to him, if you had been here, he would not have died. Why didn't you come? Where have you been? She goes on to even now say something that, even now though, God, you, God does whatever you want him to do. We, we, what's going on here? I don't know if she's asking Jesus to raise him from the dead, maybe. But maybe just for a moment, she's thinking that way. But then she goes back to this kind of like, he mentions that, oh, he will rise again. She goes, well, I know he will rise again. She goes from like, it's almost seeming like, well, if, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Then she goes into, even now, though, God can do anything. But then kind of almost pulling back. Like, even now, can God can give you what you want. But I can't even hope for that much. So then I'll pull back. And then Jesus goes, he's going to rise again. She goes to this, like, this kind of theological treatise. She's like, well, I know, eventually. It's like somebody telling you now, if you lost someone, well, one day they'll live again. And you're like, that doesn't help me right now. That still hurts right now, right? I love this, this idea that she's like, and this beautiful confession that she makes. Yes, I believe, I've always believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. That you, and then he says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. One who believes me will not die, but live. Guys, can I just tell you, sometimes in the Bible when you're reading it and Jesus says certain things, I feel like there needs to be a choir behind you starting singing hallelujah. You know, because that's the way I hear this. When I read this passage, I just want to hear, I want to hear Miss Ruby's voice yelling in the background, hallelujah. Am I right, Miss Ruby? Hallelujah. That's what I'm saying. That's why I hear when I read this passage of scripture and when Jesus is talking about, I am the resurrection, I am the life, and if you believe, you will not die. That's why I heard in the background of my voice, I hear Miss Ruby yelling hallelujah. And so what Jesus meant when he said to the disciples before he came to Bethany, I'm glad I wasn't there. What I think he means and what he meant was that this will give me an opportunity to speak to Mary and Martha and others about what I'm really here for, the ultimate issues. It's, it's an unusual joy. It's, let me put it like this. That Jesus' joy is a sword that knows what's better for us. I'm perfectly certain that Martha and Mary asked the question, does Jesus really care? And each day passed, and he didn't come, and they questioned, does Jesus really care? And the only answer that can be given to that question is, he knows what's best for me. His unusual joy came from this idea that, hey, they're sad, they're mourning, but I know what's happening. I got their future, their best interest at heart. There's joy coming. I know it. And so his unusual comes from knowing that. It's like this, guys. My son, Josiah, is kind of becoming more and more like me, especially on Monday mornings after a great weekend. He wakes up. He's ready to play. Wakes up early, like the weekend, which I hate. I was like, why do you wake up early on the weekend? But she does. And then I say the faithful words. I say, all right, Josiah, yup. Time to go get ready for school. Then Josiah looks at me. His face goes from happy to like, 
And he gives me this cute but sad look and it says, no school. And I'm like, oh, he's, he's saying to me, dad, can we not just have fun like we did on the weekend? Don't do this to me, dad, don't you care? I don't wanna go to school, it's hard. It made me like color and sit still and listen to stories. When you're with me, dad, you just throw me around. I can hang out. I don't wanna do this school stuff. And it's my joy to take him to school, even though he might not like it, because I see that the letters he's learning, I hear the songs that he sings, I see the results of his schooling. I have an unusual joy in the circumstances, even though it's hard for him, I have an unusual joy in the midst of my son's sadness. I have this joy because I know it's better for him. I know what he's getting out of it. I know what's, what's nurturing and working out in him, and I know one day he will see it as well. Why did Jesus wait? for unusual joy. Jesus says to the disciples, because now this gives me an opportunity to do something and say something that's so much better. Guys, I wonder if you believe that in your own circumstances today. That God has so ordered your circumstances, it might seem hard, it might seem unfair, it might seem like it's suffering, it might seem like, why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to do this? Can I tell you that he's done it for you? Do you trust him? That he's doing for unusual joy, for your unusual joy. School heart is hard. Life is hard. Suffering is hard. But there's joy. And do you believe that it's meaningless? That there's no purpose to it? It's all random. Or do you believe in a sovereign God who gives meaning to it? Who says it's for joy? Number three, an unusual sympathy. The sympathy is unusual because it contains both weeping and raging. I like, I'm gonna use that word raging multiple times here, so just bear with me on that one. It would be easy to conclude that there's something heartless about what Jesus, the way Jesus does things here until you come to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and this is Mary now, who's finally come out of the house. She's followed by mourners. Jesus saw her weeping, and the people that were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit in the ESV, which I love, the new, the new living that Erica read. Uh, we decided to go with the New Living because it's easier to read in the whole story form. Uh, most of my preaching is done out of the ESV, but I love the New Living did it so well, this translation. There's a word here in verses 33 and 38 that's been a difficulty for Bible translators for many years. In the NIV and the ESV, it, it does not actually solve the issue. It's the word in verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. And also 38, deeply moved again. That's the ESV. Here's a problem with this word. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know this, but typically the word that's in this Greek is primarily used uh, to mean to snort or to bellow with anger. Kind of means like, right? Yes, that's, that's a good snort, right? That's pretty good. I practiced that for you guys beforehand. <laughs> that was a better one, whoever just did that. <laughs> um, it's very common, it's used in ancient Greek. The only other place in the New Testament it's used is Mark 14, five, when the woman takes enormously expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it, and everybody comes at her and it says, and they rebuked her harshly. That's what the NIV says, but it can't avoid this idea that they bellowed, they snorted at her. The reason that the Bible translators have a hard time with this is they figure it would raise a lot of questions. People read this and say, how could this be? Jesus is filled with grief at the same time quaking with rage. 
For those of you who are kind of more, people who are into translations and modern translations, one modern translation that says it well is Eugene Peterson's The Message. That's actually his translation of the New Testament. And he says here, this is what the message says. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. In his grief, there was a towering anger. Because Jesus Christ did not approach the tomb of Lazarus with weakness, but he approached it as a champion facing his foe. Why was he quaking? Why was he snorting with anger? Why was he raging along with his weeping? I'm going to digress for a couple things really quick. But first of all, one of the things that always comes up is if Jesus knew he was going to get Lazarus out of the grave, why was he weeping? Did you guys ask that question? Why did he weep? I always thought the exact same question because that was a very famous verse, right? Jesus, Jesus wept. Profound, powerful, everybody. It's actually in the 16th century is when they actually, when they started putting verses in the Bible. And they thought that was so profound they made that the shortest verse in the Bible. Do you guys know that? Bible trivia. If Jeopardy ever asked that question, you can thank me later. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I always thought that was so weird. Like, it's cool that Jesus wept. And I thought that was emotional. I thought that was awesome. But why would you cry if you know you're just going to raise him from the dead? Right? I thought that was kind of weird for me. And... I mean, why, just why would you do it? Now, it says he began to weep when he saw everybody else weeping. But he knew he was going to turn their weeping into joy. So if I saw everybody crying, but at the same time, like, I knew what was about to happen, I would be like, yeah, this is awesome. Look what I'm about to do. Everybody's crying and sad. I'm about to, make, I'm about to be the hero. make everything better for everybody. Woohoo! I don't think Jesus is only thinking of them. I think this is where his divinity and humanity comes together. Because he's man, he loves these people. He sees what death does, and he feels it. He sees devastation, and he sheds his tears. Because he's God, he can look through, and here's what I think he does. I think he's able to interpret this funeral. He turns it into joy, but I also think he's looking out throughout history. And not just seeing Mary and Martha weeping, but I think he sees the results of funerals all throughout the course of history. And he, he weeps. Have you ever wept at a funeral, at a coffin? Have you ever just wept and mourned and wailed? If you haven't, you probably will one day. Someday either, um, I don't know, actually emotional thing, talk about this, it's sad. Um, someday either I will weep over Gina's funeral and she'll either weep over mine. It's just reality, that's what's gonna happen. And I realize Jesus can't just be weeping over what's going on with Lazarus. He's actually weeping over the heartbreak that all of us will feel, knowing that this is what death and sin has brought into this world. He's weeping because he sees us. Because he loves us. He's not just weeping. And this was so incredible. Because he loves us. He's not just a God who weeps at the funerals. He's also a God who rages. He's mad. He's angry. But I love this. I don't... He's a God who weeps, and I need that, but I don't need just a God who weeps. I also need a God who rages. Let me tell you why. But before we get into telling you why, I want to make sure that you understand this. He's not mad over the weepers. He's not mad at those who are mourning. That's not what he's mad at. That's not what he's raging at. He's not mad that, oh, come on, Mary and Martha, you're sad and you're crying. You shouldn't be. We have eternal life. What's wrong with you? That's not what he's raging at. Do you hear me very well? He's not raging at me being, even this idea of crying over my, me crying over my wife's body one day. He's, he's not raging at me. He's raging because what do you do before you get into a battle? I don't know about you, and I, 
for me, like if I was, if I was before, like you go to a basketball game or a football game, or if you're playing, in your, you know, I remember, you know, you talk to all these NBA players, like they have the music they get play, or before you go into a boxing match, you got the your fight song that you're playing. That music kind of pumps you up, you know, you kind of get yourself into a, a, a fired up state, fired up kind of position. This is what Jesus is about to do. He's about to enter into battle, and he's raging over what's happening because he's about to battle against death and Satan itself, and he's raging. Because what sin has done, and he's broken this beautiful world that was meant to have no more weeping. This beautiful world that was meant to have the lion lying down next to the lamb. This beautiful world where there was not supposed to be um, swords and spears, but instead beautiful work that God was given us to cultivate the land. And it became broken through sin. So God, he's raging at the results of sin, the hurt, the pain, the suffering that exists in this world. And he's raging, but he's also raging, but he's about to enter into a fight. And the fight ultimately culminated at the cross, but it actually started before that. I should have actually had the passage read on all the way to 53, verse 53, because what happened is Jesus, after he raises Lazarus, the, the Pharisees get together, they hold their big council, and they plot to take his life. Jesus knows that if he raises Lazarus, if he does this unbelievable, tremendous action, he's forcing his enemy's hands. He's saying, if I bring Lazarus out, I'm burying myself. The only way to interrupt his funeral is to start my own. Literally, what historically John said, that's exactly what happened. That Jesus is in this beginning using this. It's, people already wanted him dead, but he's really signing his death certificate now by bringing Lazarus to death because he's really proclaiming with words and actions that are too bold to ignore that he is God. And the Pharisees are saying, I got to do something about that. And the fight that he's about to fight, the wage that he's about to fight is that he's saying, yes, I'm about to enter in. I'm taking on the cross where I'll ultimately fight and defeat sin and death forever. He was raging at what sin caused. Now the application here at the end is really rather profound. We don't have to dive, time to dive into all of it, but what I want us to, to, to apply to our own lives is how do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with the brokenness around us? And I think it needs to go like this. We need to weep and we need to rage. Don't get mad at those who are weeping, but we need to weep ourselves. Not a stoicism that says, ah, whatever happens, happens. No emotion involved. We need to weep and we need to rage. When you confront evil and suffer, let's, let's just be real. If somebody close to you dies or you suffer, what do you say? Do you get mad at God? Why didn't God just snap his fingers and keep that from happening? What does it mean? I want us to hear that sin exists in this world. And God delays often in fixing the things that we want fixed because he has an unusual love. He has an unusual sympathy. Or unusual love, unusual joy, and unusual sympathy. And that leads us to want to rage and weep. His unusual sympathies are a model for action now. How do we face suffering and difficulties? With tears and with truth, with rage and with weeping, 
with incarnational living to show the love of Christ. Guys, can I tell you that, let me just be honest and real with you. I know sometimes it doesn't seem like enough, but let me tell you that the sovereignty of God, knowing that God is in control, knowing that he's bigger, knowing that he's there, knowing that there's a purpose even in the midst of suffering is so much better than saying it's all random and that there's no purpose. Do you believe in his goodness? And believe that one day he, even in the midst of all the hurt, is procuring something so beautiful and glorious in you, and one day all will be made new. And we live in the reality of that hope. My people, we know what it's like to weep. May we continue to weep with each other. May we love each other in such a way, but may our love and our joy and our sympathy towards each other be like Jesus. May we have a different perspective than the world. May we have an unusual love and unusual sympathy and unusual joy. Amen? Let's pray.